from the audio archives of the Bible Study Hour. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the classic teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Is there anyone in your family or perhaps a friend whom you are ready to give up on? That's not so unusual. I don't know anyone who does not feel like that once in a while. And don't forget that you have probably given someone else cause to feel that way about you at times. Before you give up on that person, however, ask yourself, would God give up on them? Because to God, every person is valuable. I think evangelicals especially need to recognize this and proclaim it widely. Evangelicals often so stress man's sinful and depraved nature that they end in dismissing the value of man altogether. Author, theologian, and pastor, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce began teaching on the Bible Study Hour in 1969. He went to be with his Lord in 2000, yet his biblical insights and in-depth teaching continue to encourage, equip, and edify believers. The goal of the Bible Study Hour is to prepare Christians to think and act biblically. On this edition of the Bible Study Hour, Dr. Boyce presents the message entitled, God's Peculiar People. We can tell a lot about someone by finding out what touches his heart and moves him or her to tears. We can tell a lot about the heart of Jesus by one simple verse, Jesus wept. But what can we learn about ourselves from this verse? We discover three important truths. God's people are precious in his sight. Our sin has brought ourselves into such a terrible state that even God weeps over us. We also see how desperately we need God. Stay tuned and find out today what you can learn about yourself from today's study. The scripture text we'll be looking at for this edition of the Bible Study Hour is John chapter 11, verses 35 through 37. Here now is Dr. James Montgomery Boyce with the message entitled, God's Peculiar People. It is possible to examine a subject from different points of view. For example, the American Revolution can be studied from the viewpoint of what was happening in England or America in the 18th century from the viewpoint of economics or political theory or other matters. If it's studied from the viewpoint of England, it can be expected to throw light on such questions as what was England's relationship to the colonies at the time? What was King George doing? What were the policies of the court? Why were the cries of the colonists unheeded? And so on. If it's studied from the American perspective, the revolution might tell in part how the revolutionary ideas originated, what the settlers desired from England and from their regional governments, and so on. Each of these approaches is valid, and the answers derived will be valid depending upon the amount and quality of work done in each area. In a similar way, the text that we've been studying here on the Bible Study Hour may also be looked at from diverse points of view. In fact, we've already looked at it from two of these viewpoints. The verses John 11.35, Jesus wept. It may be looked at for what it teaches us about Jesus, about the Father, about ourselves, and finally about the love of Jesus for us, which is to be our pattern in loving others. It's the third of these, 
what the text teaches us about ourselves, which will be our subject today. In an earlier study, I compared this text, the shortest in the Bible, by the way, to a little window through which, if we get close enough to it, we may see much. At this point, we may perhaps compare it to the hole in an old-fashioned pinhole camera in which the picture becomes sharp only when the hole is quite small. Well, then, what does John 11.35 teach us about ourselves? It teaches that we are precious in God's sight, that we have gotten ourselves into such a state that even God weeps over us, and, finally, that we need God. We need to look at each of these points carefully because each one is of great importance. First of all, then, our text teaches us that we are precious in the sight of God. In fact, this is one of the most obvious lessons of John 11.35, since it is only because we are precious to God that Christ weeps over us. Suppose for a moment that you are walking down the street in your town or city and that you step on a bug. Do you stop and cry over the bug? Well, not at all. The reason is obvious. The bug is not precious to you. In the same way, most of us do not weep over broken pottery, a torn shirt, a run in a stocking, a dented fender in the car, or thousands of other things. These things may have value. Their loss may be an inconvenience to us, but they are not precious, you see, and so we do not weep over them. On the other hand, we do weep over the loss of a friendship, the death of a friend or relative and similar matters. Now, God considers us precious in just this sense. Moreover, in case we should miss the point through our slowness in understanding his actions, God actually tells us that we are valuable to him. Not to be sure because of anything that is in us inherently, but because of what he has made us and will yet make of us. 1 Peter 2.9 makes this point clearly, calling us God's peculiar people. I need to explain that when Peter calls God's people peculiar, he does not do so in the sense that we normally attach to the word. To us, the word generally means different, odd, queer, or eccentric. And while it's true that some Christians are peculiar in this sense, it's nevertheless not what 1 Peter 2.9 means. Here the word is to be taken in its Latinate sense, with the meaning special or valuable. It comes from picus, cow, which means worth many cows. This would be a way of assessing value in an economy which was not so dominated by paper currency as is our own. In the Greek, which underlies our translation, the words are ace parapoiasin, which means a valuable piece of property or a possession. Incidentally, while we're on the subject, we have the same sense of the word peculiar in the last stanza of Isaac Watts' great hymn, Jesus Shall Reign Where'er the Sun, in the lines which read, Let every creature rise and bring peculiar honors to our king. Watts did not mean that we're to bring bizarre honors to God, the kind of honors that are suggested by some of our contemporary worship services, but rather that the honors which we ascribe to God are valued by him. 
But now, let's return to the subject at hand, the fact that we are precious in God's sight and ask, why are we precious to God? Here we get into a very important area of biblical studies, because the answer takes us back to the earliest chapters of Genesis, in which man is said to have been made in God's image. This is actually stressed in Genesis to the degree that it can be said to be the most important characteristic of the man and the woman. It is what makes them different from the animals and from the plant world. Genesis puts it like this, and God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And speaking of the fact that man was created in God's image, I have sometimes referred this to the three-part nature of man's being. So, we say that God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we say that man was created in God's image, we mean that in an analogous way, man is also a trinity. In man's case, this means that he consists of a body, soul, and spirit. The body is the part we see. We tend to think that this is what differentiates man from God. We have a body while he does not. But while there's partial truth to this, in view of the fact that God became incarnate in a human body in Christ, this is not as obvious as it might seem. Let me put the question this way. Which came first in the mind of God? The body of Christ or Adam's body? Or, to put it another way, did Christ become like us by means of the Incarnation, or did we become like Him by means of God's creative act? That's thought-provoking, isn't it? I would say that we were made like Jesus. And if this is so, then our bodies are of great value and should be honored in the way we treat them. Indeed, we can say, as Paul does, that our bodies were made to be temples of God. The soul on the other hand, is the part of man which we would call the personality. It centers in his mind and includes all matters of likes and dislikes, special abilities or weaknesses, emotions, aspirations, and anything else that makes the individual man different from all others of his species. Here again, we are made in God's image, and here again what we do with our souls is important. Are they being trained to desire the best that God gives? Or do they wallow around in the worst things we know? Do they strive to think God's thoughts after Him, and so grow intellectually and spiritually and in every other way? Or are they captivated by sinful thoughts and values? In this area, we're dealing with the fact that God has what we would call personality, and that we have our personalities because of Him. It's because we are created in God's image in respect to our souls that we are able to have fellowship with, love, and communicate with one another and, of course, with God. Finally, man also has a spirit. This is that part of his nature that does commune with God and partakes in some measure of God's own essence. God is 
nowhere said to be body or soul, but he is defined as spirit. God is spirit, said Jesus. Therefore they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Because man is also a spirit, he can have fellowship with God and love him. Here, then, is a very remarkable thing. Man is made in God's image and is therefore valuable to him. God loves him as he does not and cannot love the animals or plants or inanimate matter. Moreover, he feels for him, identifies with him, grieves over him, and intervenes to make him into all that he himself has determined that a given man or a given woman should be. We get some idea of the special nature of this relationship when we remember that in a similar way, the woman, Eve, was made in the image of man, being formed from his own substance. Therefore, though different, Adam saw himself in her and loved her as his companion and corresponding number in the universe. It's not wrong to say, therefore, that men and women are to God somewhat as the woman is to the man. They are God's unique and valued companions in the universe. In support of this, we need only to think of the teaching concerning Christ as the bridegroom and the church as his bride, which we find throughout the Old and New Testaments. One more thing needs to be added before we move on. We've said that man has been made in God's image and that this gives him value. We need to add to this that it is true even after the fall. Even in the state that man is in now, he preserves something of the image of God and so remains valuable to him. We see this in several places in the Bible. For instance, in Genesis 9-6, the verse which records God's institution of capital punishment as a proper response to murder, we read, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Or again in James 3.9, in a verse which forbids the use of the tongue in cursing other men, we find, Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men who are made after the similitude of God. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Here you see, the murder of another or cursing of another are forbidden precisely on the grounds we're discussing, namely that the other person, even after the fall, retains something of God's image and is therefore to be valued by us as God also values him or her. I think evangelicals especially need to recognize this and proclaim it widely. It's not intentional, of course, but evangelicals often so stress man's sinful and depraved nature that they end in dismissing the value of man altogether. They look at men with horror-filled eyes and then cease to care for them. And seeing the sin, they lose sight of the sinner and cease to love him. Brethren, such things ought not to be. Indeed, if we allow them to be, it will be but a short time until we return again to the dark ages out of which only the Christian ethic with its emphasis upon the unique value of man has rescued us.
in my city of Philadelphia, an expanded surgical team at the world-renowned Children's Hospital separated a pair of 18-month-old Siamese twins, Clara and Alta Rodriguez, who had come to the hospital from the Dominican Republic. This operation involved 18 doctors and five nurses, just for the operation itself. And in addition to this, there was a week of tests and at least a month or two of post-operative care. The family came from the poorest area of their country. Literally, they had no income at all. If they had need of something, they would take some of their homegrown vegetables down to the village and exchange them for what they needed. Yet here was an operation done on their children by the best pediatric surgeons in the world at a cost which some observers placed at upwards of 50000 or $100,000, yet was cost-free to them. Now let me ask, what produces such compassion and such an effort? Don't tell me it's the so-called spirit of Western man, for at one time babies like these would have been discarded on a remote hillside to die from exposure or from the ravages of beasts. Or to bring it closer to home, it's not so long ago that they would have been placed in circuses so that some unscrupulous promoter could make money at their expense by exploiting base human instincts and curiosity. What accounts for this effort, then? The only answer is the inherent value of man revealed to him by God through Judaism and Christianity and now embodied at least for a time in the best of Western ideals and institutions. Take away such a revelation and such values, and the age of barbarism will return upon us. Well, I've taken most of our time to deal with the matter of man's value, the first of the lessons about man that the phrase Jesus wept suggests, because it's the most neglected. But it would not be right to deal with this subject without going on to point out also that man has marred God's image and is therefore in a state to be wept over. Thus, as I said earlier, the text teaches us that we have gotten ourselves into such a state that even God, who might be thought to be above tears, weeps for us. Do we need another example than that of Christ before the tomb of Lazarus? If so, we find one in an event which comes shortly after this in Christ's ministry. Some few days after the raising of Lazarus on what we call Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He had sent his disciples to find it, and when they had brought it to him, he sat upon it and rode toward Jerusalem, while those disciples who were with him and those who came out of the city at his approach threw their clothes in his pathway and paved the way with branches stripped from the palm trees. In such a context, we might expect Jesus to have been filled with excitement and even joy. We might expect him to have rejoiced in the fact that so many were apparently following him. But this is not what we find. Rather, we find Christ weeping, knowing that the cheers of the people were shallow and that unbelief rather than faith characterized the multitudes that filled the city. Valuable? Yes, the people were valuable, but also so submerged in sin that their eyes were blinded to that which could have been their great blessing and spiritual peace. Oh, it's a terrible thing, this shattering of the image of God in man. 
It's catastrophic both for the individual and for those with whom he's in contact. Paul tells about it in Romans, showing that sin has broken relationships with God, first of all, then with others, and finally of the individual with himself. He puts it this way, because when they knew not God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Here is an excellent description of what sin has done to man. It has destroyed him. It has broken that communion with God which he originally had and which was his highest attainment and quality. It has poisoned his relationships with other men and women so that he now exploits them rather than helps them. And it has ruined man himself so that his thinking is now warped and his values inverted. This should cause weeping. Indeed, as we look at man through God's eyes, our text should be Ecclesiastes 3.4, which tells us that there is a time to weep. Or perhaps Luke 23.28, which contains Christ's words to the women of Jerusalem as they followed him on the way to the cross. Weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Well, my final point is that we need God. We are valuable to God, yes, but we are so marred by sin, so unable to extract ourselves from the bondage into which our sin has plunged us, that there is no hope for any of us unless God saves us. Here is the unique quality of Christ's tears at the tomb of Lazarus. If the situation had been redeemable by human effort, Christ would not have wept. If sin could have been overcome, or if death, the product of sin, could have been eradicated, we should expect Jesus to have said, Dry your tears, stop feeling sorry for yourselves, get on with the work, solve your problems. But he does not do that. Instead, he weeps because from man's point of view, man is hopeless and his problems unsolvable. And yet, not for God. With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus says to Martha just five verses later, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Martha did see God's glory, for her brother was raised. But so do all who come to Christ as their Savior. We need him. Sin, suffering, and death ably testify to that. But God in Christ is able to meet our need. Indeed, he has met it, for he has given his life and then been raised from the dead in order to deal with the entire sin question. Isaiah told about it a thousand years before Christ was born, stressing that we who had been made in his image so 
bruised and battered him that, physically at least, his image became even more deformed than our own. But he added that Christ endured this and all suffering in order that he might restore in us that perfect image of God which we had before we rebelled against him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Here is the ability and great love of our God. For these, and only these, take us from the depth of our sin and restore to us that lost image of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Scripture is like a rich mine. The deeper you dig, the more you find. Very quickly, let me just list a couple of things that anyone can do. First of all, spend time in meditating on God's Word. You can't get much out of it unless you put time into it. Second, consider each word. Even in the two-word verse, Jesus wept, each word contains a wealth of meaning. And then third, let the Holy Spirit direct you to other passages of Scripture. Where else did Jesus weep? What other emotions did Jesus exhibit in his ministry? At this point, perhaps a good concordance would help. That's one Bible study aid I recommend for anybody. And now, our Father, we thank you for these truths from your word, and we ask you to use them in our hearts. We thank you for your love for us, shown in Jesus Christ, and we rejoice and marvel in such a great love. Help us to also love as he loved to love you, and to love our neighbors, and to love those without the gospel, in order that some might be one to our Savior. For we ask that in his name. Amen. Do you cry over the burdens and sorrows in your life? Remember, Jesus wept over Lazarus, and he shares in the tears and grief of every child of God. If you would like an audio copy of this edition of the Bible Study Hour, call us toll-free at 1-800-488-1888 and request the message entitled, God's Peculiar People, or simply ask for message number 1321. You may also write to us at the Bible Study Hour at Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. This message and additional teachings by Dr. Boyce are accessible by visiting us online at www.alliancenet.org. And when you visit our website, or when you call or write, be sure to investigate and inquire about the many resources available from the Bible Study Hour and the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, including daily devotionals, information on upcoming conferences, and in-depth written and audio Bible studies including a vast number of studies by Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Again, our contact information, write The Bible Study Hour, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Call 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at alliancenet.org. Your prayers, encouraging letters, and financial gifts all enable the Bible Study Hour to continue its outreach ministry. 
Once more, today's edition of the Bible Study Hour is entitled, God's Peculiar People. That's message number 1321. Thanks for utilizing the Bible Study Hour to be a part of your Christian growth. Join us again as the teaching of Dr. James Montgomery Boyce prepares us to think and act biblically.